from Mobi.co, this is the Flagship Pod, a weekly live podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you, kind of for the first time live, uh, some breaking news. We were going to be talking about how Silicon Valley Bank was in trouble, but no, Silicon Valley Bank has just been shut down by regulators, and the FDIC is stepping in to protect insured deposits. This is something that is happening as we are recording, so you're going to get more live reactions if you're listening to the recorded version of this that airs a little bit later. Uh, to help me sort of like unpack, you know, the, the banking happening right now, as always, audience, I am joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co, and, you know, somebody who's a kind of banking regular uh, veteran themselves and sort of like has a better insight into the industry. Justin, dude, what the hell? Like, how do you go so badly? Did you get, you go from shaky to shut down in like a span of 12 hours? Yeah, I mean, this is unfolding in real time. So we don't have all the information yet by any means. You know, in the coming days, weeks, months, potentially even years, more and more of this will unfold. So take a lot of this with a grain of salt because we do not have the full picture yet. Having said all of that, with that out of the way, that general disclaimer, what's happening right now is crazy. Like you're seeing every single week this contagion effect continue to like unravel across the tech industry that is so highly levered or even just so risky that anything is subject to change. So we've obviously talked to death through a lot of the FTX stuff that's still ongoing. Silvergate, which we can get to, is is going through their own similar type situation. And now with Silicon Valley Bank, theirs is a little bit unique in the sense of how it's happening. But effectively, again, we're seeing this unraveling. And so for those of you who haven't been paying attention for the last 12 hours, because that's how literally this, <laughs> how fast this unraveled. Effectively, what happened from what we understand so far, again, subject to change, is that a lot of Silicon Valley Bank's core clients, mostly being tech companies, have obviously not been doing so well the last year. They've been burning through a lot of the, their capital and ultimately either defaulting on loans and withdrawing capital from the bank, which ultimately kind of led to a run on the bank to some extent. And so effectively, Silicon Valley Bank had to sell a lot of the debt on their balance sheet in order to cover the losses and stay liquid. They also tried raising capital. It looks like that was potentially unsuccessful. And so literally overnight, the the bank now is like looking to potentially um, sell its assets to somebody or find a buyer or raise capital. And now as of 10, 15 minutes ago, they have are going to be now taken over by regulators and FDIC insurance is going to be kicking in, which means that anyone who has assets in the bank, they're secured up to 250K by the government. I mean, 250K is nothing for compared to companies that have millions and billions with this bank. So this, like many things, we always say this is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. This is going to have crazy contagion effects for a ton of tech companies that have their capital in there. Who knows who was able to get their assets out? Who knows how long this will take to unfold? This is this is insane. This is going to have massive implications for the tech industry in particular, as well as the banking industry. We're not necessarily looking at like a Lehman, you know, type crash again. I mean, having said that, we could be. But this could be the start of it, but this is this is a like a massive, massive deal right now. Because the main thing we have to keep in mind, audience, is that Silicon Valley Bank isn't, you know, 
like as traditional of a bank that you might have dealt with. Obviously, Justin and I know a lot about Silicon Valley Bank because we're in the startup zone. We're in the whole tech scene, right? Silicon Valley Bank, as the name implies, is, you know, f funding a lot of startups. It's kind of like a VC fund as well. Like if you are in tech, you know somebody or work with somebody whose startup has been funded by Silicon Valley Bank at one point or another. So it's not just accounts getting insurance for 250K. It's all of these tech companies with millions of in their funding rounds in Silicon Valley Bank right now too. So it's going to be wild to watch this play out across the sort of like early to mid-stage tech scene as we watch a bunch of startups go through um, their kind of apocalypse event right now. So it was already a, a tough time for entrepreneurship and innovation with rising costs, but now you just watched a lot of it, uh, an immense amount of oxygen just get whoosh, sucked out of the room. Um, so rather than kind of speculate on what this means, like we're just watching lots of market indicators right now. Bitcoin's finally back below 20K and falling. So obviously the market's appetite for risk is done um, at the moment, right? Um, not, not, not falling precipitously or anything, but we're using Bitcoin as more of an indicator of the market's appetite for risk at this time. So Justin, let's kind of take a step back here and kind of unravel what's happening because Silicon Valley Bank wasn't really the canary in the coal mine here. There were a bunch of banks beginning to show signs of a little bit of trouble beginning yesterday. And I just don't really make, it's not really making a lot of sense to me, Justin, because I thought high interest rate environments like the one being created by the Fed were going to be good for banks. So what are the kind of forces at play here that, that are helping cause this? Is it just rising costs blowing up Silicon Valley Bank's portfolio or are there broader inflationary issues that are hurting banks on a broader scale? So again, it, it depends like bank by bank for Silicon Valley. Again, from what we understand, and, and this is all unraveled in the last 12 to 24 hours. So we do not have a full picture of it yet. Well, Silicon Valley Bank, it looks like they took a lot of assets, invested it in long-term debt, and then that debt with rising interest rates ultimately like was worthless. So effectively, we believe they had bought like billions of dollars worth of 10-year treasuries. 10-year treasuries yield a certain percent, but they don't get rebalanced or like to higher interest rates. So those 10-year treasuries they bought a year, two, three years ago, well, now they're not nearly worth as much because the rates are higher. And when rates go up, uh, current bond, like bond yields go down. It's kind of like this inverse effect. So if rates go down, then like, then ultimately bond yields go up and vice versa. So what that is ultimately saying is that as bond, as interest rates go up, newly issued bonds are more attractive and then the existing bonds are less attractive. Therefore their price falls. So, I mean, long story short with them, it looks like potentially some sort of mismanagement of cash on their side getting amplified by a lack of liquidity through their clients, another potential run on the bank, and kind of led to this like disaster scenario. So, I mean, in a nutshell, higher interest rates are good for certain banks, but in particular, and we've said this for a while now, every bank or every company within a certain vertical runs different. And if, you know, they bought a ton of 10-year treasuries, and ultimately that was this huge source of their liquidity, and there's no liquid market for it anymore, if they sell it at a massive discount, then that's going to completely screw them. And I don't, again, we don't know, but we're going to have to start looking at Chase, at Morgan Stanley, at all these big banks and seeing how they allocate their excess cash. How liquid is really 10-year treasuries? How liquid are a lot of these marketable securities? Again, in times of panic, like everyone moves towards cash and things really change. What you thought was liquid, you know, a few years ago isn't necessarily liquid anymore, which is what we're seeing in real time. So, I mean, long story short, interest rate, higher interest rates are typically good for banks, especially banks that lend out a lot of capital because they can get more of a return. But again, 
in times of liquidity, a lot of this kind of gets thrown on its head. Over the long run, the banks that are financially sound have strong balance sheets. Um, we're, like we're still very confident in higher interest rates over the long run will bode well. But for Silicon Valley Bank in particular, a bank that's extending loans towards companies that typically wouldn't get it from a traditional financial institution, we're obviously seeing the repercussions of that right now in real time. And it's also QT, right? Like it's the Fed re reducing its balance sheet. There's so much less free money that every dollar you have on your balance sheet right now really, really counts. And so the kind of like very lackadaisical way banks like this have been managing money is now coming home to roost, so to speak, because again, you know, you have you have certain amounts of debt that are you bought, you know, earlier in the year, earlier last year as well, that are worth less than debt that is there now. And it's kind of like this weird ongoing cycle. And so you're seeing a bunch of banks kind of get rippled with volatility with these deposit issues. We're also watching First Republic Bank, uh, PacWest Bank Corp, Western Alliance Bank Corp, and a couple of others whose trading was halted at one point for volatility. So this is more of like a scare than like an actual crisis, like you're just watching a, a, a bit of a spook. But uh, one thing that Justin is going to kind of let us like laps in here we're going to update us from a conversation you and i had last week um obviously silvergate capital had to get totally liquidated um after you know they had troubles with their crypto um situation but now we're seeing signature the other crypto bank the other really big crypto bank get halted for volatility too they're down 30 percent on the day as well so uh, just a bad time to be providing liquidity for risky assets right like any thoughts on the crypto industry now that signature is looking a little bit shaky as well um, yeah, I mean, so like Silvergate is an interesting scenario. And then I just real quick to touch upon back before the ending thoughts of kind of this contagion effect. I don't know. We don't know at this point how this will ultimately shake out. But ultimately, a lot of tech companies keep their assets at this bank. And if this bank just went out of business in 24 hours and they're only insured up to 250K, we'll see how the government like reacts. But I mean, there's a real chance that this will ultimately like put companies out of business potentially. Like, it feels like something will step in and like ultimately change that or like there's some repercussions that like most people haven't considered or like, sorry, some safeguards that most people haven't considered. But at a surface level, you look at this and you're like, this bank supplies a lot of the tech industry and with it gone and they're only insured up to $250,000, you know, who the heck knows how this will play out at this point. So I mean, it was already hard enough being a startup in 2022 slash 2023, but this just adds to the cake, right? Yeah, it's like... It's nuts. Like, it is really crazy. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, getting on a little bit of a tangent. Do you mind repeating the question on the Silvergate side? You know, so, so yeah. So, just wondering how we're still feeling about crypto. I'm, I'm really excited to see Bitcoin stay a little bit resilient with the situation. Like, live in the moment, Bitcoin is only just barely um, trading into 19K. Like, it, Bitcoin and crypto have been on the way down all week thanks to the lack of liquidity provided by Silvergate's collapse. But just in additionally, just adding, you know, to the fire of crypto right now, Signature just had trading halted as well. Like, not full liquidation or anything, but their stock is down 32%. Signature being the other big bank that, you know, works crypto industries. So, you know, a, a tough time to be in crypto, but how do you see crypto shaking out now? Is, just ex is this just extending the timeline or are things getting real wild now that Signature is leaving the, uh, the game board as well? I mean, crypto again, like, and now it even seems like the traditional banking or traditional finance system is, is not being called into question. But again, this is like how volatility shakes out in the markets. Any time, like all these, every single company runs on debt. Every single company needs some sort of liquidity. And when there's a, like a crisis, like a crunch, rates are higher. So existing like debt is worth less. And you're moving to cash in a world where there's less cash and people are going risk off and trading out of volatile names. 
Like there's going to be massive implications. You're seeing with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature and crypto. Um, and then with Silvergate, I mean, again, we don't know how far this, how far this will ultimately fall out. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. I mean, ultimately, I think with crypto in, in particular, again, it feels crazy over the long run, I believe, based on everything we're seeing, institutional adoption, um, that ultimately a lot of this will rebound. But again, we need to be highly cognizant of the fact that this is a risky asset and in a risk-off environment, ultimately anything that's playing in the crypto space is going to get like hurt. People aren't trading it. There's a lack of liquidity. The price of the assets get marked down significantly overnight. And so any company like Silvergate or like, you know, any again, any of these companies that's operating in the space, they're going to be highly affected, whether or not they're running like a sound business. Like, you know, imagine, for example, you're in the gold business and you're selling it for, I'm making up prices for the sake of like a metaphor, but say you everything you do is on gold and you sell it for $1,000 a gram and then you buy it for $1,000 a gram and everything is run on that. Well, all of a sudden, if it goes down to $200 a gram, even if you're running a fundamentally sound business, ultimately, if you're running on a volatile asset, then you're subject to massive, massive risk if this goes down. So you're seeing it in real time. So obviously, Silvergate paid the brunt of it. We're seeing other financial institutions pay the brunt of it right now. But again, over the long run, things will rebound. They always do. Um, but the strong companies that have the strongest businesses and most defensible businesses will survive, and the ones that don't will will fail. That's a really good way of looking at it, too. Like We have to see inflation as not this like beginning of some kind of crisis or beginning of some kind of like depression or collapse, right? Because we've been in situations like this before where the market, you know, was shaky and, you know, was borne out. It's just we got so used to easy money, easy capital, as the Fed just kind of just kept shoving free cash into the system and just made, you know, growth the standard for the period between like 2011 and 2020, like nine years of insane growth. So we just have to get used to this new normal where you actually have to run a more sound business you have to have tighter financial controls you have to build these ways to protect your business and so that's why you know, our job gets a little harder but you know a little bit more important as we you know find these levers that we can pull to find those winners and losers right people who are doing well and not doing so well and we'll get into that maybe a little bit later on as we get back into retail but audience i hope you you know we appreciate your patience as we react live to ah historical forces playing out right before us i'm sure if you're listening to this on monday when it gets published you're like that already played out dude why i mean welcome to the past guys i'm sure it's way crazier where you are right now but justin let's go ahead and sort of like talk about things that are a little bit more pressing but before we do audience obviously while we're here in the present the most important thing to keep in mind is making sure that you have a, a, an investing philosophy that gets you to the next five years the next 10 years having sort of that long tail view is going to help you be successful basically no matter what and in order to do that you know it's uh, we this podcast is brought to you by well us moby.co if you want to get a better sense of our long-term perspective and how we think about individual stocks and individual trades go ahead and check us out over at moby.co slash go we have free trials we have a lot of information portfolio the works in terms of what's good, what's bad, what has a better long-term view, and how you can sort of like build your way to incremental wealth throughout, uh, you know, the course of you playing this game, which is investing, which is in fact one of the easiest games to play as long as you play it consistently over a 10 to 20 year time period. Regardless, thank you for listening to that. Let's get back to the actual podcast though. Justin, let me go ahead and ask you a little bit more. Let's get more into like 
longer term trends. So I want to kind of shift gears because I want to keep unpacking what's happening with our inflationary environment. We're also really looking forward to um, the CPI coming out. Uh, that's going to be on Tuesday, which is tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day it's published, or a couple days away if you're here in the live audience. But let's go ahead and look at what the market's been reacting reacting to in our present, which is jobs data. We've got a lot of mixed bag in terms of jobs information. Um, right now, hiring remains strong, but we're seeing actual payrolls go, go down, right? Um, nothing is as bad as it was at the beginning of 2022 when we saw non-farm payrolls go up by 17, uh, 700K. We're... Uh, Payrolls were added by about 311,000 this month, Justin, which is more than expected, but actually the amount of money people are getting paid is going down, which is a great sign for inflation. A lot of confusing variables there. How do you look at that as you kind of gear up for how the Fed's thinking about interest rates in this inflationary environment? Are we beating inflation on the job side, or is labor just still too strong and the Fed's going to have to destroy the economy in order to you know, win their fight against labor, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough situation because the Fed is obviously trying to raise rates to slow down the economy and then jobless claims need to increase, aka the unemployment rate like effectively needs to increase, which means people lose their jobs, they spend less, and then inflation comes down. I mean, that's like the general theory. But if this goes past people and starts spreading out to you know banks and banks go out of business because companies are doing poor and then people lose their jobs, Listen, the Fed wants to pull things back, but they don't want to like sink the financial system. So like, I'm not suggesting that's going to happen tomorrow, but if they keep raising rates and we're getting more of this contagion effect and com these huge companies that are important go out of business, I mean, at some point, like they're going to be forced to stop and we're just going to have to deal with inflation. Past that, something they don't want to admit is that a lot of this inflation, as we've talked about before, is a supply side issue. So um, with all of... The world, a lot of the world's energy coming from Russia, with a lot of exported goods coming from China, with COVID stunting things and the war stunting supply chains. Again, the ability to get the goods that we need at cost-efficient prices is becoming severely impacted or has been severely impacted rather for the last several years. So even if you shut down demand, the underlying supply is not being affected by the rise in interest rates, if anything, it's making it more expensive because the ability to get these goods now are more expensive. So we're going to be in this interesting scenario where the Fed is like raising rates, trying to cool down inflation because everything's getting so expensive. But again, it's kind of having this opposite effect. So long story short, they want to avoid obviously a hard landing, but the worse this gets and the more this continues to play out, the more they're going to be forced to having to stop this. But They've made it their stated goal that they are doing whatever it takes to stop inflation at all costs. And they came out the other day and said that we'll get the CPI report next week. So we'll see how it actually comes. But ultimately, I think that Fed's terminal rate, which basically just means um, the, the highest rate they'll ever get to, has now increased higher than what the expectations were just only a few months ago. So, yeah, I mean, this again, this is all shaking out in real time. We will do a lot more work internally to figure out, you know, what our ultimately long-term outlook on this will be. But in the short term, again, this is, this is just not great. We think rates now will be higher for longer uh, and ultimately is going to impact growth. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those things, too, where, you know, we'll have a much bigger deep dive on the actual forces driving inflation once we have that CPI. Every CPI report kind of evolves a little bit more. Uh, the last two have kind of not been as cooled off as we wanted them to be. We're seeing the we're seeing inflation cool off, but not at a particularly brisk enough pace for, for us to be super confident. So we're hoping to see an acceleration this time. But, you know, there's so many different factors that are at work here and frankly once again the fed just isn't in that much of control and again energy volatility can play into this really well if energy prices kind of dip down below a certain level they can drive the cpi much lower than it actually is or much higher than it actually is because of just how volatile all energy prices are because of this conflict in russia and ukraine which justin thank you so much for setting me up for that easy layup for a transition to the next topic because i want to call out something that you did on instagram a couple days ago justin you managed to put out a quick chart that showed that um u.s military aid uh, to Ukraine has now exceeded the amount of money we spent um, in Afghanistan from 2001 to 2010. Uh, in the past year, we've spent $46.6 billion, um, you know, helping Ukraine keep Russia out of the rest of Ukraine. Uh, so, yo, what's the deal with that? Like, um, is that a wild statistic or is it just kind of like comes with the territory when you're fighting a bit of a proxy war against what is our biggest geopolitical rival right now? Yeah, so the stuff in in Ukraine is obviously a highly contested issue right now. Um, so specifically, I want to look at the, like the spending component of it. So to your point on the Instagram post that we did the other day, the the general gist of it is that the U.S. is spending more per year in Ukraine, on Ukraine than it did on Afghanistan. Obviously, the Ukraine conflict is much shorter lived than the conflict in the Middle East, but just per year spending, we're averaging more than we did per year over that decade plus. So... Obviously, that's going to become with some pretty intense scrutiny for a handful of reasons. One, we're dealing with an, like massive inflationary issues. If we're spending billions and billions of dollars, obviously that money has come from somewhere, so that adds to inflation. Past that, we have a massive deficit in this country. And so if we're giving more money to a foreign like country, again, that just increases our debt. And as we hit this debt ceiling, obviously that's a massive issue. So then on one hand of the equation, you have President Biden who just released a proposal that likely won't get passed, but to increase capital gains rates as a way of increasing taxes. But again, now you have this kind of, this really like intense heated debate in the country. Now it's like, we're giving money elsewhere and then we're taxing our own people to pay for it. Like, is that right? Is that wrong? A lot of what I we believe that the government is doing in Ukraine is yes, obviously they're trying to protect uh, democracy. But again, a lot of this is going to be a uh, a geopolitical play in the sense that they want to be able to keep us, us being the U.S., keep us safe um, and the world more or less in order. So let's let's break it down into a few separate categories. So in isolation, obviously, if Russia takes over Ukraine, they look to potentially take over 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 other territories. That starts becoming a massive issue from a humanitarian standpoint from a war, if like, again, this is just going to raise tensions even further. And if we get to a nuclear war, that's not good for anyone. And so in isolation, there is an issue. That's why the U.S. has been wanting to get involved past that. What we believe this is, is honestly a bigger play with China. So if China takes over Taiwan or invades Taiwan, which has been something they've been threatening for for a while, there will be even more downstream implications. Um, that would be pretty awful. And so what we've seen right now is that with the U.S. responding to this conflict in Ukraine, showing not only will we put sanctions on the U on Russia, but and the rest of Europe will as well, but we'll also give them military support. 
We believe that the U.S. is doing that as a show of force, not only against Russia, but also now against China. The reason being is that, and the most important reason is that China, for them to invade Taiwan, now that they've seen what's happened, the chance of that has now decreased. And so why has that decreased? If you look at Russia, Russia is one of the world's largest exporters of oil and wheat and ultimately food products. So when we impose sanctions on them, obviously it hurts them. But at the end of the day, people need to have power and energy and they need to be able to feed themselves. So Russia, while it won't last forever, their ability to do so dwarfs and or, or China, I guess China's ability to do so dwarfs in comparison to Russia. So if we then impose those same sanctions on China, their ability to feed themselves because they're net importers, not exporters of food and energy would get severely impacted. And so, you know, maybe it takes a month, six months, a year, but their ability then to feed their people, keep the lights on, they're not going to be able to do so in the same way that Russia has. And so now they see this and they're like, if we invade Taiwan, ultimately the same sanctions, the same military support is likely coming based on prior actions. And now we will like, I wouldn't use the word implode lightly, but there's a chance now there's going to be a lot of political instability within China should they do that. So what we believe is outside of the immediate impacts with Russia, Ukraine, this is a message to China saying, hey, if you ultimately take over or invade Taiwan, we're going to do the same thing there. And that forces China to be less aggressive, keep the world more in order from the U.S.'s standpoint. And ultimately, like there's there's a lot of oversimplification here, but the U.S. is not just doing this in isolation to protect Ukraine. They're doing this ultimately as a part of more a geopolitical play on the whole world, so like world security. And then again, past that, that's going to have massive implications on the supply chain, on interest rates, on inflation, and then ultimately then funnels down to the markets here in the U.S. They're all super related. Obviously, the macro is always important, but in the last year or so, in the next year or so going forward, the macro is really going to rule how the economy works. Whereas in the decade prior, companies, you know, they didn't necessarily have to be impacted so much about a stunted supply chain, any monetary like issues with inflation or interest rates, everything was accommodative. And so it was just go out and execute. So long story short, we need to understand how companies can ultimately uh, work with the, the current macro environment, who plays best. And honestly, it's a huge reason we're very bullish on Tesla, on First Solar, a lot of these companies that have tailwinds that uh, that people in their field just don't have. Exactly. And Justin, just um, to help our audience make sense of this, uh, we've talked about this macro situation for a while now. Um, I'm going to go ahead and do a quick summary of, you know, why the likelihood of China invading Taiwan has gone down by just giving a quick summary of the last three years. Um, and you're going to tell me if I'm, you know, oversimplifying or if I'm off base or not. So um, the economic order of the, the 2010s was this insane supply chain that was centered around Chinese production and Western consumption that was gradually ceding a lot of power to China. That completely broke down with lockdowns and COVID-19 and put a lot of impetus on countries to sort of reshore a lot of their manufacturing. You're watching Tesla shift manufacturing build away from even Europe to like um, smaller factories in the US and Mexico. You're watching a lot of co companies come back, automate as much as they can and manufacture here. Um, now that China's kind of losing that sort of like manufacturing base and sort of losing that power share, it needs to find a way to sort of shore up its protection because while China is, you know, one of the biggest economies in the world and literally by population, the biggest country in the world for now, um, it's in a vulnerable spot. So invading Taiwan gives them a huge power basis to sort of project their power, you know, across the whole 
Pacific and make sure they maintain sort of a bipolar instead of a unipolar power hegemon. Um, by invading, by um, providing all this aid to Ukraine, the U.S. has demonstrated how well they can fight a proxy war and how they completely can just grind down an enemy. And China looks at this and says, okay, well, I'm going to keep playing nice. I have to weigh the insane cost of invading Taiwan and losing trading access to the United States and the entire Western market and see if, like, second place is better rather than trying to build a new unipolar world, a new Cold War. Is that a solid way of looking at it, right? Is that, like, a good summary? Yeah, no, I think that's a good summary. And to your point, on the, on the, at least on the Tesla side, and then that really leads to other companies bringing their operations back on shore. This like era of globalization, I wouldn't say it's over, but it's going to start coming more inward in the sense, you know, the last 40, 50 years were characterized by countries uh, and companies rather expanding outwards. So, you know, you look back to the early 30s, 40s and 50s, everything, a lot of things were produced here in the US. Like you have cars and Detroit being at the center of that, being huge, huge producers of vehicles. Companies quickly realize they can go to Mexico and get a lot cheaper labor and make a lot more money. That then expand, and that's what was really with the kind of uh, free trade agreement through NAFTA um, with Mexico, the US and Canada. And then that expanded even further. People realized that they can go to China and get even cheaper labor. And for years and years and years, it worked. And up until COVID, that kind of flipped everything on its head. And now companies are coming back on shore, especially with the things you talked about with China, with Taiwan, with Russia, they just realize that they can't necessarily rely on these companies or countries rather if think if shit hits the fan more or less. So yeah, is it cheaper there in the long run? Definitely. But at any point your, your business can be subjected to external risks outside of your control. And if it's done in the US or at least North America, then it's obviously a lot more sustainable. Um, we can control what's going on here and there's a lot more stability here than what's going on with a given country at any time. So long story short, I mean, you're going to have a massive like repatriation of a lot of these companies bringing their vertical, bringing their supply chain back on shore, which is like this verticalization uh, specialty. So I, I, again, we're still always relying on global trade. It'll be a huge piece of what we do. But again, a lot of things are going to start coming back on shore due to China, Taiwan, Russia, Ukraine, COVID, you name it. There, there's a lot going on that's Im impacting this. Exactly. The name of the game in the 2020s is going to be simplification and automation, and we're going to see exactly how that all plays out as we, you know, navigate this really wild interest rate environment. So we're excited to see that CPI next week, audience. Labor's looking a little bit goofy compared to that. Um, we are finding individual winners and losers, but we'll probably go into that a little bit more next week once we have more of a portfolio there. We just have two awesome, solid winners from this week to talk about as well as next week. So we'll save that for next week since we're already way over time here, Justin. Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Thanks for your perspective today, dude, by the way. Uh, any final thoughts from you? Uh, kind of a frantic episode with the breaking news hitting us, but, you know, that's that's what you do in the podcast game, dude. Yeah, no, I know. This is, listen, every week's crazy, of course, but this week more so than, than most between Silicon Valley Bank, uh, Silvergate. I mean, the, the it just goes on and on and on. There's It just seems like each week gets crazier than the next. So using that craziness as a sentiment for the markets or a gauge rather for the markets, I would think we're close to the bottom. But again, calling the bottom is is a pure sucker's game. So we will look towards signs for more stability. But obviously, the news in the short term has been nothing but chaos. So we'll continue, guys, continue to keep you guys updated on what's going on, try and give you our take, let you know what it all means. And as always, you know, head to the site head to the Discord, head to our social channels, ask us questions. We'll, we'll try and get them as quickly as we can.
Exactly. And I think audience, if you're looking for like our real view here, um, we're watching Bitcoin not go beneath like the high 19 K's and probably going to break back over 20 K by end of day. And we're watching the Dow Jones dip to 150, dip 150 points on open, but it's now only down 50. So we're seeing this more as a very small little bit of chaos, a blip, so to speak, as opposed to a contagion event that's going to really drive the market even lower. Sucks to be a startup right now. Sorry for all my friends in the tech space. But otherwise, we're looking at this at the moment, you know, don't, you know, bet on this or anything, but not as much of a contagion event as it seemed like at the very beginning of our recording. Regardless, audience, again, check us out on our various social channels as well. Please check us out over on Instagram as we have a lot more insights there that are more in chart form. Check us out over on TikTok as we sort of make more discussion around that. Join us on our Discord if you have any specific questions. We try to answer as much as we can over there. We are still a small team that, and rapidly expanding, but still in that moment where, you know, we do answer questions just sometimes a little bit slowly, so to speak. And uh, as always, join us over at moby.co slash go if you want to get more of our long-term perspective and perspective as we keep expanding our understanding of what is just the goofiest market we've had in a long long time there's no more easy money to be made but that's what makes this awesome and makes your wins you know that much sweeter so audience check us out there otherwise audience we really appreciate your time thank you so much for listening and as always we'd like to leave you with peace love and incremental gains everyone be well thank you so much